Good morning. morning. My name's Pastor Kurt. So good to be with you here this morning. Glad you decided to join us on this beautiful day. How many of you love summer? Oh, yeah. I'm so glad it's summer, and uh, I love the warm weather. Um, So welcome here. So glad to have you. I had an announcement as we start off this morning. Um, Some of you may know him or not, but Pastor Matt has been the campus pastor at our Halstead campus for five years now, and um, he is moving on. The Lord is moving him in a different direction, Um, him and his wife, Olivia, and their two kids, and they're going to be going to uh, Virginia to the Point Church, and so we're very excited and sad about that, excited that God's going to use them somewhere else, but so... But please be praying for the transition for Halstead. Um, God's going to continue to do great work at that campus. But just want to let you know that. And I just wanted to say uh, regarding Matt, um, is that he's been a big influence in my life. Um, last year, uh, they asked me if I wanted to be the director of small groups for all Bridgewater. And I'm like, uh, okay. No, no, I really was excited. I didn't say okay. Um, I was really excited, but uh, one of the, the neat things was I got to uh, meet with Matt every week, and he's just poured into my life and, and helped me uh, lead in that position, and um, it's just been so good. I, I will miss him a lot, but um, God is doing, moving him and doing different things, and, and uh, he's doing great work all over the world, so uh, we're excited to see what, how God's going to use Pastor Matt there. As we uh, get started this morning, I'm going to start you off with one of my most disliked pictures. Um, So I'm going to show that to you here. All right. This is called The Scream. Um, Maybe you've seen it before. Maybe you haven't. Um, But I I struggle looking at this picture. It's it's pretty freaky, I think. Don't you think? Um, I won't have it on the screen too long. Um, But the idea is, is... uh, the, the one who did this painting, uh, Edward Munch, um, he struggled with severe emotional struggles. Uh, he struggled with uh, severe depression. Um, and this, this painting is a representation of, of severe emotional struggle. Um, and, and so I wanted to, to, to take a look at that while I share with you um, this morning. Uh, A picture of what it uh, might be like for a young man who struggles with some of the issues we're going to be talking about today. And uh, as as just sort of a warning, and I just feel like I have to say this out front, um, I'm very passionate about this issue. Um, I've worked with um, people in counseling for a long time struggling with the issue we're going to be talking about. So I'll probably get emotional, and I'll probably cry, but I always have to get that out in front so that you know that's going to happen. Um, and then, uh, because it's really near and dear to my heart, um, Jesus' love for these folks. So, I want you to imagine sitting down with a young man who's never felt like he's enough. Never felt like he's measured up or that, or that he's the person that he's expected to be. During adolescence, he felt like he was not a boy. He began to hate and despise his body. This led to severe anxiety and depression and even suicidal ideation. Trying to reconcile these thoughts, 
and feelings with the world around him and the expectations of life, the expectations of others, this only led to further feelings of anguish. He decides that he hates his own physical body, so he'll decide to become a woman. When he thinks of this, he experiences some sense of relief. Maybe this is the solution to his problem. But he thinks, man, I don't have the money for surgery or hormone pills, so instead, I'm going to call myself non-binary, and I'm going to refer to myself with the pronouns they or them. This way, I don't experience the negative, the intense negative emotions associated when he thinks of himself as a male. And then at the same time, he's not experiencing the lying to himself because he clearly does not look like a woman. So he decides that he's non-binary. This inner conflict does happen. The question is, for us, how can we come alongside this person and love them because they are, in fact, created in the image of God? Our identity does not come solely from how we feel in the moment. We belong to God and were made in his, in his image and likeness. Last week, we learned about the sanctity of life, that we're all made in God's image. Therefore, we have tremendous value. We're all fearfully and wonderfully made. One of the statements that Adam said last week is that we are broken reflections of a perfect God. As a counselor, I've had many conversations with my clients trying to walk through these difficult things in life, through their thoughts and feelings, trying to understand and help them to come to a point that's healthy in regards to their identity. And that's one of the, the major concerns in our society today is identity. The question, who am I? The definition of identity is who you are, the way you think about yourself, the way you are viewed by the world, and the characteristics that define you. It also means the exact likeness in nature and qualities. Oftentimes, it's shaped between the ages of 12 and 18 years old. This is what a man by the name of Eric Erickson talked about in his stages of development. He called identity versus role confusion. He states, during the adolescent years, young people seek to develop their identities and formulate self-images that will greatly influence their abilities to love and work. It's common during this stage of life to be confused about who I am, right? How many can identify with being confused when they're a teenager? Anybody? Okay, come on. All right. How do I fit into this world? The question is, who has the authority to answer these questions? And should someone be making major life changes at such a confusing time? And this is what we're choosing to talk about today is transgenderism. The definition of transgender is an umbrella term for many ways in which people might experience and or present and express or live out their gender identity. They might live it out differently from people whose sense of gender identity is congruent with their biological sex. 
Now, in a room like this, we could have varying opinions on this matter, on this topic. And you may have very strong feelings about it. But I encourage you to listen with grace and try and understand what God's word says and how we should be responding to the people around us. First of all, how did transgender identities become such a huge topic in our world? So we have three categories here of old world, new world, and the gray area. So traditional morality is what we're used to, is what older generations are used to experiencing where we have some foundation that might be in the Bible, but some sort of foundation where we know what's right and wrong. Community and tradition and religion also play a role in the old world. A higher power, some aspect of, of God is in that picture. And identity is given by that culture. And then, but now what's happened is we've transferred into a new world. And in this new world, we have subjective truth. It becomes about expressive individualism. The idea that I have my truth and you have your truth. And I can't say that my truth is true, but then say your truth is not true. The authority lies in the individual. It lies in me as the power. My identity is found and it's self-defined by me alone. What does that lead us to? It leads us to morality becoming subjective. If, if I have my truth and you have your truth, then I can't tell you any different because that's your truth. So morality then becomes subjective. We have an overemphasis on sex, which we're going to get into. And then we have some confusion about sex and gender. And then um, we have transgenderism and gender dysphoria, which I was talking about earlier in that example. So in Generation Z, people ages 9 to 24, is the first generation to think this way. There's been a worldwide culture and moral shift, and they are on the cutting edge of it. Sexuality and gender is the main stage that we see these changes played out. The previous generation, they would have scratched their heads to hear me say, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. But this generation hears it and gets nervous about me critiquing the phrase. That's because they've grown up thinking and living in the, in the air of a new moral architecture called expressive individualism. The words sex and gender, they used to be used interchangeably, but now they're not. Whereas sex refers to your biology, nowadays gender is now how we give expression to that reality. The most basic and widely agreed upon definition of gender is this. The psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male or female. From these roles we play in our culture and society as men and women, stereotypes emerge. Most men are like this. Most women are like this. But it is true 
that not all biological men and women fit those stereotypes. But do they then cease to be a man or a woman? Not according to Scripture. But Scripture is not the authority for people today. Their own thoughts and feelings about themselves are. And it's not that people have never questioned their gender, but our society now propels people to discover your truest self. Is the tomboy really just a boy? Previous generations would have said she's a tomboy. This generation might say she's actually a boy. People are now confused about their identity because they don't feel their inner self is in line with their psychological self. As, and so people wrestle with gender dysphoria, which there's the description I gave to you earlier. Now remember, what Adam and Eve did when they sinned, they covered and they hid. Spiritual sin has physical and psychological effects. It distorted their view of their bodies. Gender dysphoria is a distorted view of ourselves to the point we can believe we're on a different gender than the one we're born with. Now, gender, gender dysphoria itself is not in itself a sin, but one of the tragic results of sin that's entered into the world. Oftentimes, gender dysphoria can shift to gender euphoria when someone begins to transition from male to female, or female to male. When a transgender person makes this change, they may feel a little bit better. They may change their clothes or wear makeup or even have surgery. The problem is it's a short-term change. And just like other pitfalls in life, the person can end up continuously seeking out what makes them feel good, but only ends in pain. And so why is it such a big deal in our culture? Well, here are some reasons. Sex and sexuality is everywhere, absolutely everywhere. 80% of television shows contain sexual content. One-third of total daily searches on porn websites are for pornography involving teens. Porn sales bring in more revenue every year than the Major League Baseball, NFL, and NBA combined, over $100 billion. 85% of young men and nearly 50% of all women watch porn on a regular basis. The U.S. is the largest producer and exporter of porn worldwide. It's literally everywhere. So a generation has been duped into believing that sex and identity are the same thing. We have allowed others to tell us who we are, or we've listened to ourselves in determining our identity. I often feel or do things that do not define me. But how I feel does not determine my identity. How I feel changes. How I view myself changes. The way others view me changes. You've been told by people in the past, maybe you've been told that you're stupid or that you're worthless. Maybe you've been told that you're athletic or you're smart. Sometimes you're tempted to believe what is said to you. Sometimes you're tempted to believe what you're saying to yourself. But neither of, none of those are reliable or fixed. Only God's word on who you are gives you life and helps you to flourish. 
I am more than my feelings and more than my desires. You are more than your desires. Your desires are just that, desires. But they're not your identity. Your identity is given to you from God and is unchanging. My sexual desire is not even my identity. So the question we should be asking is, who does my creator say that I am? We're in a world, we're in a culture that has deviated from God's design. And any deviation from God's design brings pain, confusion, and chaos. According to his design, God created us with our gender and it is fixed. It's male or female because God made me that way on purpose. Not because I fit a stereotype or subscribe to a cultural norm. Gender is confused because God is not the authority in our culture. But you know what? We can be quick to judge current generations because they don't think and act like our generation. The younger generations didn't ask to be brought up in this cultural climate, but nonetheless, they'll have to navigate it. We can choose to help them with kindness, or we can choose to be critical because they're not like us. And for sure, some have embraced a transgender identity in defiance of God. But I'm telling you, and I know this by experience, many secretly struggle with unwanted thoughts and feelings about their sexual identity. Both need Jesus. So let's go back to the beginning and look at what God said through the writer Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So what do we see here? According to Genesis 1, part of being created in God's image is that we have authority over the creation, meaning the land and the animals. In the context of created mankind in his image, he created them male and female. And he said that they would subdue the earth and be fruitful and multiply. So in other words, it was expected that part of being made in the image of God has to do with procreation. So God had made us separate from animals, we're not animals, we're to rule over them, but we are, the fact remains that we are male and female. This is God, the creator, reasoning and declaring. He's announcing, really, what he's going to do. He is creating people, human beings. It's interesting that this is the first time male and female are emphasized. It was mentioned before, but not emphasized like this. What we have here is a Hebrew poem like a break in the narrative, leading to the conclusion that what was happening here was significant. That it says male and female are image bearers is intentional and significant. We as male and female bear God's image. God made male and female in his image by design. 
So our first truth from this passage is that God intentionally and exclusively designed male and female. We could say it this way. Sexual differentiation is not a social construct. It is intrinsic to who God made us to be in his image. Sex is a biological reality. It's how God created mankind. He only pronounced creation very good after he made them male and female. God created Adam, a man. He made him the way he wanted him to be. God created Eve, a woman. He made her the way he wanted her to be. It was God to tell them who they were. And these differences that they have are by design. Preston Sprinkle in his book, Embodied, writes, a person is biologically male and female based on four things. The presence or absence of a Y chromosome, internal reproductive organs, external sexual anatomy, endocrine systems that produce secondary sex characteristics. So there's a science lesson for today. When we follow God's design of honoring the created distinction of male and female, of honoring one another made in God's image with gender differences, it equals a pathway to a flourishing life. And this is what's recorded at the end of Genesis 1, where God says in verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. After each day in creation, God said that it was good. After he was finished, after he created male and female, he said it was very good. So that leads us to our next point, which is honoring God's design leads to flourishing. Though it may not feel like it in the moment, I realize that there's pain in the midst of the the struggles, the emotional struggles that many have, and many that are having some of these issues in life, it's hard. But it's possible that your life can lead to flourishing if you follow God's design. God saw, he saw all he had made, and it was very good. The differences in what God made were all very good. Not just what he made, but how he made it, and how it was designed to function that it would flourish by design. All people are made in God's image according to his design. His design included male and female. As those two parts come together in honor of their distinct differences, this leads to ultimate flourishing. In fact, the only way for humanity, this is logic, right? The only way for humanity to continue is for those two biological sexes to come together and procreate. This is what God commands Adam and Eve to do in Genesis 1.28. This was his design for them as his image bearers. This is the way he made us, and it was very good. God said so. But we live in a world today that doesn't subscribe to God's design. We said in week one that God is the source of life, and the Bible is the authority for life. But we have to declare that because those are not universally held truths. The world we live in today is very broken. It has been tainted and polluted. It is not, and people are not functioning the way that God designed. 
Even Adam and Eve didn't honor God's design for their lives. We don't know how much time passed from creation to when their disobedience happened, but we know that they did not follow God's instructions. They did not honor God's design. God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, perfect people in a perfect world, with one rule. But Satan came in the form of a serpent, and he tempted Eve to step outside the boundaries God had given by convincing her that it would be better if she took from the, from the tree that she was told not to. It'd be better if she violated God's instruction. He convinced her that God was holding out on her. She and Adam were reflections of God, but that wasn't good enough. So she broke God's command by eating from the tree she was told not to eat, and Adam ate as well. Thinking they knew better than God, they deviated from his design and ushered sin into our world today. And then let's see what happened after that. Genesis 3, verses 7 to 10. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. This was the beginning of shame. For the first time, Adam and Eve felt shame. As a result of the corruption of sin, we all too experience shame. Some to varying degrees. Some have different struggles. But ultimately, the deviation from God's design leads to pain. It may not feel it in that moment, but ultimately, it leads to pain. Eve was tempted and deceived. Adam chose, but they were both wrong and were accountable. How did this happen? It happened because they doubted God's goodness and wisdom. They played God with their identity. He would not be the authority over them anymore. They would be their own authority. Satan led Eve to question God's word. What, did he really say that? What were his intentions? Is he really for my good? Their doubt opened the door for pride. Pride set the table for sin. And sin came with results. What were they? Well, I talked about shame, but they covered and they hid. Spiritual rebellion against God resulted in covering and hiding. And when confronted, they did not own up to their sin. They blamed someone or someone else. They dug their heels in and tried to cope with their new normal that they had created rather than submitting once again to God's design. And this now is the world that we live in. So what are we to do? Let's talk about struggle. Let's say you struggle with self-control. You overindulge all the time. It's wrecked your life with finances, with relationships. You have constant feeling of dissatisfaction as it's never enough. But maybe someone else, they struggle with lying. Perhaps it's something they learned to do as a defense mechanism from childhood, and they've never been able to shake that sin. 
You take each of these two people, and maybe they, one doesn't have compassion on the other one because they, they don't have that problem. They don't have that sin problem, so they struggle to have compassion for that person. What if there's something someone struggles with that you don't understand at all? It's not a sin that you struggle with. Do you make an effort to understand or, immediately tell, or do you immediately tell them how wrong they are? So what should we be doing as followers of Jesus? Like children, think of this. Children who make it their mission, once they get to know something, they make it their mission for everyone to know. You experience that with children? And then they become the truth police. And then you can't really, really control what they're going to say next in an awkward environment, right? They're just going to come out and say it, right? They're going to be the truth police. But you know what? We need to refuse to take that posture. We've got to commit to the truth of God's word without living it out in a way that repels those we're trying to reach. For us, truth must not be a weapon, but an anchor. I say that one again. For us, truth must not be a weapon, but an anchor. I love this next quote here by Preston Sprinkle. And yes, you can chuckle with the last name. I always do. Um, all right, so posture is crucial in this conversation. As Christians, we already know how many strikes, we already have so many strikes against us. We're known for being anti-gay, judgmental, hypocritical, anti-trans, anti-target, anti-this, anti-that. Jesus, he was against many things, but somehow he had a reputation of being for people. Somehow, Jesus was able to have a clear ethical stance to speak out clearly against sin, and yet to still draw to himself the very people who were found guilty by his words. Isn't that amazing? I mean, the example that Jesus is for us. Consider these statistics from, this is the largest survey ever done on the LGBTQ plus community on religion. 83% of those in LGBTQ plus community grew up in a church environment. 54% of them chose to leave the church after age 18. Only 15% left the church because of the church's beliefs on marriage, sexuality, and gender. I'm going to read that. That wasn't a mistake. Only 15% left the church because of the church's beliefs on marriage, sexuality, and gender. According to this survey, relational division from LGBTQ plus community hasn't been primarily caused by what we believe, but how we treat and talk to and about LGBTQ plus people. So a few things. We need to listen. We need to set our stones down and listen. It's not enough to know what someone is doing. We must also listen to learn why. 
Only then we'll be able to offer help. The one place where we have to get this right is in the church. We must give people hope, help, and love. So we need to listen and we need to love. Each person is created in the image of God and loved by him. Even if they have a struggle that's different from your own. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Treat each person individually. You may be upset about a political agenda that's occurring. I get it. I'm aware of it. But the reality is, is each person that you encounter is a person that's created in the image of God, regardless of where they're at. So I encourage you to ask God to help you to see each person as Jesus does. We can accept them as a person without simultaneously affirming their behavior. In love, we cannot affirm our right to deviate from God's design or our right to undo what God has done or superficial solutions to spiritual problems. But in love, we can affirm personhood, an image bearer, the value of that person, and that they are loved because Jesus does love them. And the last one is help. Listen, love, and help. Our church must be a safe place for those who struggle, regardless of what that struggle might be. Today, it's this, this topic of transgender. Another day, it's a different topic. But the reality is, is our church needs to be a safe place for those who struggle. We must defend those who are mocked and refuse to be mockers. Accepting a person for their personhood is not affirming their gender identity. So my takeaway question for you today is does the church embody kindness? Does the church embody kindness? And I have that scripture on you for you to take with you today to answer that question after you read that passage of scripture, 1 John 4, 7 to 21. And you know, at the end of this series, um, Adam and I are going to be available. We're going to do like a, a panel discussion for like those that are interested. Um, I realize that in the course of this series that sometimes more questions are created than answers. Um, hopefully we're doing a good job in giving you what, what we're presenting, but um, we want to have honest conversation and talk through these things. Um, and it could because we want to show the love of Christ to people. We want to have, we want to speak the truth but we want to speak the truth in love with grace. So um, we'll be having that on June 25th. Um, and I want to say today that we're going to have a QR code on the screen. You can feel free to scan it if you like. Um, on there are additional resources for this entire series. So as we do each message, the resources will come up for that message. So you can scan it and then you'll know. Um, one of the resources is his book called Embodied. As I've referenced several times in this message. It's uh, Embodied Transgender Identities, the Church, and what the Bible has to say. I'd encourage you to challenge yourself in this area 
Um, speak the truth with grace and show the love of Christ to all those around you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, that you've offered us the free gift of salvation through your Son, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that if there be anyone here today that does not know you, that today would be the day that they put their faith in you. I pray, God, for those who struggle, those who struggle with these thoughts and feelings that we've discussed today. God, that you would bring them to yourself. Help them to know the hope that is found in you. And God, I pray for, for those that it's, this is a hard conversation to even have. Lord, that you would help them to grow in their walk with you and, um, and God, be able, to, be able to present your truth with grace. Lord, we love you. We cannot do this without you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.